1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. My name is Julia Kublinska, and I am your host, joined today by Chen Peng to talk about her book, Artful Subversion, Dao- Empress Dowager tzu Image Making. Dr. Peng specializes in late imperial and modern Chinese art history with a focus on gender issues and globalization of material culture at American University. Before joining the American University, she worked at the National Palace Museum and the Academia Sinica, both in Taiwan, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art as a pre-doctoral research fellow. She received her PhD degree from the University of California at Los Angeles in 2014. Her forthcoming book, which we will be talking about today, uh, will be published by Yale University Press on January 23rd, 2023. So listeners have to hold on a little bit, but I promise you it's worth it. Um, in addition to this book that she has just finished, she is also conducting research on the Chinese porcelain industry in the 19th and early 20th centuries and the role it played in shaping modern connoisseurship of Chinese decorative art in Europe and the United States. But perhaps the most treasured piece of information I found about Professor Pong today came from uh, a glimpse at Rate right, My Professor. The first review says that she is an all around awesome professor who is very engaged with her classes with her st- and her students. Um, and judging by the uh, bright and engaging style of her book, I absolutely believe that. Um, so Artful Subversion, Empress Dowager's she's image-making is a beautiful volume on late Qing imperial art practice. The book is rigorously researched and richly illustrated, and it presents a revisionist biography of the Empress Dowager through an analysis of her patronage and participation in making art. Each chapter follows Tsixi's artfully subversive command of various media forms, from photography and portraiture to architecture, porcelain, painting, and calligraphy. Considering her as a patron and artist in her own right, Peng frames the Regent as a canny political and aesthetic strategist who worked within and against conventions that circumscribed female political power to craft an assertive role as the face of the Great sing Empire at a moment of immense historical change. Welcome to the podcast,
2: Julia. Thank you for your um, very generous introduction. And um, um, hi, dear uh, listeners, um, in Chinese speaking.
0: Uh, Inchen, can you tell us a little bit about your background in uh, art history and Chinese studies and how you came to write this book?
2: Okay, So the story began uh, in Taiwan. <laughs> so um, I um, earned my MA degree from uh, the Graduate Institute of Art History at National Taiwan University. It's a very rigorous uh, program. Uh, and I spent four years there. So you can imagine the, uh, the kind of um, uh, training, uh, the intensity of training we received. And um, uh, my major back then uh, was some ceramics, uh, Chinese ceramics ceramics and the Buddhist art. And um, after I graduated, I started working um, at the National Palace Museum. It was a very exciting time uh, when we were redesigning and reimagining galleries prior um, to so that. It was um, all by different media. And then uh, we came up with a new framework that was actually um, by, uh, by time period. And um, uh, different art media mixed together, it of course created a lot of challenges uh, from a curatorial perspective because you know different materials require different kind of um, uh, 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 conservation. And um, uh, but it was starting from um, joining that projects, I realized that I was very much fascinated by the um, late Qing court art it was um, very insignificant <laughs> compared to all other galleries uh, like Song Dynasties, Yuan Dynasties, and Ming Dynasties. Uh, but um, uh, somehow the star pieces for the National Palace Museum uh, are mostly in that tiny gallery. So I started to wonder, okay, so why uh, why do we have this um, divide between scholarly understanding of Chinese art history and popular interest? Since, um, you know, late Qing court art, you know, twenty years ago was still a very minor field that not a lot of people um, in our field uh, were interested in. And then I digged a little bit further and realized that way during this time period, the most important art patron was actually a woman. Empress Dowager Cixi. So I started to grow very interested in what she had done and surprisingly realized that um, not much on uh, scholarship was there for me to study. And uh, one day when I um, uh, came across a uh, former professor, I told him, you know, um, uh, I wanted to study Empress Dowager Cixi. And I still vividly remember that conversation because um, his response was really lukewarm. He was like, wait, what's so special about her? And, you know, I'm always an outlier in, um, uh, in my field. So it's exactly because of this kind of response uh, that I started my journey. I really wanted to know, you know, um, why we have a very important patron that nobody wants to study. What's the re- reason behind it? And then um, I entered a phd program uh, at UCLA, studying uh, with um uh, hui shuli who is a pioneer in gender studies um in chinese art history her special specialty is in the song dynasty but in terms of methodology we had a lot of shared um uh, common interests so you can say that um artful subversion is a um is a um uh, fruit that received um, uh, nutrition from my training back in Taiwan, a very rigorous training in multimedia, material culture, and um, a more theoretical um, uh, training at UCLA, where I was exposed to excellent scholarships and colleagues um, uh, in gender studies, feminist art histories, and um, Asian studies. So that um, eventually, you know, many years of um, uh, work resulted in uh, the present book.
0: Absolutely. And that leads us very nicely into my next question, which is to note that you frame your book in several disciplinary conversations, right? As you've mentioned, feminist art history, gender studies, and also new Qing histories, right, which have um, reassessed the Qing, not as a failure, but as a very exciting time. Um, and you do that to produce a revisionist narrative of a leader who's often misogynistically maligned, right? Sishi. So how do these theoretical frames help you redress what you call yourself a kind of kaleidoscopic and inconsistent image of this female ruler? Like it's very hard to get a handle on her for some reason. So in other words, what Sishi emerges from careful consideration of her art patronage and practice in your book?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, um, I like the order of um, theoretical framework you mentioned, because, um, you know, they... Uh, pay- they are aligned nicely for me to answer this question. So let me begin with the new Qing history. So the rise of new, new Qing history is really important um, uh, to us because it acknowledges the agency of the Mengshu as a people and as a regime. And that enables scholars to look at the Qing monarchy in a fresh new light, especially how Qianlong, Emperor Qianlong framed his rulership in creative methods that appropriated different methods Mechanisms in, inspired by the Han Chinese, Tibetan, and even European traditions, and that certainly paved the way for my analysis because um, Cixi largely modeled her image making after Qianlong and other previous um, Qing rulers. So that's some um, the first of the you know three legs, and then uh, on feminist artistry, this discipline is really dedicated to uncovering women's artistic creativity in various roles, venues, and uh, more importantly, art media. And that really broadened our definition of art, and it breaks the um, hierarchy of art genres and types. And that's how, you know, Quilt got entered, uh, got to become, you know, museum um, um, museum uh, stables in many, um, many of the uh, large institutions. And um, uh, quilt also became a sophisticated art form, and uh, we really have to um, uh, 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 link it back to um, the uh, rise of um, feminist art history. And um, uh, to adopting that methodology or that approach, um, that um, uh, is very important to my study because, as we will discuss further um, shortly, in my book, Cixi is both an art patron and um, uh, even a practitioner of art. And I look at a variety of art media. So, um, uh, you know, the kind of um, breadth um, of um, platform that some um, um, feminist art historians carved out before me is really important. And lastly, on gender studies. Personally, to me, gender studies um, is more like a rebellious child of feminist theory because it stems um, from the same social and intellectual concern about the oppressed and the underrepresented. But it also questions the binary of sexuality and it informs us that gender is socially constructed. As a result, you know, femininity and masculinity are no longer tied to the sexual um, uh, binaries of um, female versus male, right? And that helps us um, to look at Cixi, a woman leading an all-male court right so of course she um she didn't uh, change her sexuality she couldn't right but um she could adopt many different elements to strengthen um her authority by making herself look a little bit quote unquote masculine and um by this strategy, she successfully overcame the sexual difference and disadvantage of her. And this certainly explains why she could stay in power for over, you know, for decades.
0: Absolutely, I mean, she really emerges as a figure who stands alongside Long as, as a kind of uh, practitioner, right, not not merely uh, imitator, but actually somebody who's working the game, so to speak, um, in very unique ways on her in her own right. Um, but before we get into the meat of the book, I'm, interested in questions of form and how you put it together right so you describe your book as roughly chronological but the biggest distinctions that i see between the chapters and indeed that are reflected in your chapter headings are marked by the media you examine how did you come to the crafting of the book we have some sense of of, you know your previous career in in museums so you're very attentive to media and materiality but what does your argument gain through this focused examination of multiple media projects and how do they interact with each other Wow, that's a great question. But to clarify,
2: Sushi um, worked uh, with many different art media throughout her regency. It's not like, you know, um, um, know, for these 10 years, she only looked at something, and for the next decade, she moved on to something else. It was always multimedia. Um, So initially, my dissertation was actually organized by media. But then when I rewrote it into uh, this book, Art for Subversion," I realized that a chronological order has the great benefit um, of introducing Cixi's biography to readers who are unfamiliar with her. And it just so happened that um, Cixi had a particular interest in each regency that resonated with her standing in the court at that time uh, very nicely. So, for example, um, the, um, the gardens of um, the Myriad Springs in Chapter Two uh, is one of her earliest major interventions in, you know, art commission And it is also the precursor um, to Chapter Four's Gardens of Nurtured Harmony project. And um, we also see a lot of, um, you know, uh, unrealized ideas in Chapter 2 that eventually got materialized in Chapter 4. So I just feel that, well, they actually work uh, make, they are making a very nice uh, conversation with each other. And then uh, the Daya Jai Porcelain Commission discussed in Chapter 3 stands in between because it was part of the Chapter 2 project. And many of them uh, were used and displayed when Cixi lived in the Gardens of uh, Nurtured Harmony that I analyzing in Chapter 4. So I feel that this order looks right. And then Chapter 5, um, I moved on to Cixi's painting and calligraphy. There are two forms that she was especially enthusiastic about in her last regency. And since, you know, one's brushwork is often understood in Chinese context as his or her persona, it again circles back to the first chapter in which I deal exclusively with um, uh, uh, Cixi's portrait. So that makes a well-rounded circle, I think.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, yes, absolutely. The book has um, a very good momentum is how I would describe it, right? And this chapters really strongly resonate with each other. So thank you for um, alerting us to the way in which that was designed. Uh, so why don't we get into the body of the book then? You write, uh, you describe that Zizi's various art projects, quote, crystallized into an artful subversion of the long denial of women's voices in Qing imperial history. She, again, I quote, adopted, modified and redefined the patriarchal paradigm of Qing court art. Throughout the book, you show how these processes are complex negotiations of gender and power, not just the submission oppression dyad, which is quite limiting, right, uh, analytically. And that complexity emerges in your first chapter already in your careful and rich analysis of Xi's self-fashion and multimedial portraiture. So how does Xi negotiate both the conventions of Qing portraiture and the new visual technologies like oil painting and photography um, that she's encountering vis-a-vis contact with um, actual individual Westerners, right, who are also showing up at court. Um, How does she do that to manipulate masculinity and femininity? And to what ends?
2: Um, Again, that's another big question uh, that I have to spend a chapter to articulate. So let's see how I can summarize that. (laughs) So, um so Cixi was quite clear about her devotion to the um, pictorial tradition of imperial portraiture so so that you know um that devotion to her own um not cultural but um, um but political roots uh, is always there throughout um, her regency so all her formal uh, portraits regardless of media be it pending ink pending oil portrait or photographs uh, they all share they all follow the compositional and stylistic features of the uh, of this genre, Chinese imperial portraiture, such as the frontal view, no shadow, and standard, you know, um, three piece um, thong set uh, with the uh, thong and um, standing screen in the background, and the several items with. Um, Always, all carries, um, you know, symbolic, uh, you know, uh, symbolism, uh, auspicious symbolism, um, um uh, representing the, um, uh, the rulership. So the uh, composition and style is like always very consistent, consistent. But there is evidence of her blending motifs that only appeared in the portrait of a male sitter to assert masculine qualities in her. Uh, For example, you know, um, this snuff powder um, during the Qing dynasty, uh, it was usually used by men and women would um, uh, usually smoke a uh, water pipe. And from the biography, um, not biography, from the um, account of Cixi's um, um, uh, attendance in early Republican era, um, she stated that she only smoked water pipe. She did not um, uh, uh, consume a powder. So this was definitely a very uh, symbolic um, design in her portrait, and that carried very special meaning to her. And another very masculine um, uh, motif in Chinese imperial portraiture would be books, right? know that um, uh, signifies the sitter's um, capability of reading or even governing according to um, uh, the book. And uh, also in one of her early portraits, she has a folding fan, you know, know, um, uh, rather than the round fan that was more common uh, for women. And this strategy occurred in the early phase of her first regency, a time when creating the image of capable regent in the court was critical to her authority and even survival. And then once it was securely established, we see a more creative and even, you know, whimsical turn in which she would be portrayed as a bodhisattva wearing costumes that was very likely designed by herself. And, um, and then uh, when new media such as oil painting and photography was introduced to her, so she quite quickly picked up the most significant difference between imperial portraiture in China and the royal portraiture in the West. That is um, the, um, uh, the emphasis on circulation and the public display in the Western context. And with that in mind, it's not that surprising that Tsui commissioned to oil oh, portrait, uh, painted by Catherine Carl for the uh, Saint Louis Exposition in 1904 and uh, it is a painting that emphasizes her femininity compositionally it takes the conventional format um, of um, frontal view um, and um, no shadow right but um, um, uh, in terms of um, her body is a very youthful and um, uh, uh, young uh, face with a lot of vigor and um, this sitter has really soft skin, which is definitely not the real, uh, uh, real Cixi's self uh, in her late sixties, right? And um, she also wears elaborate jewelry and accoutrement, and uh, a lot of symbols of phoenix, very feminine uh, in uh, late imperial China. In the background, you don't see any symbol that a Western uh, viewer uh, would easily, you know, uh, pick up as masculine. That is dragon. It's like no dragon on that. On that painting they're on the frame but you know uh, for the painting per se it's a very feminine painting and uh, i think she did it purposefully because it was a very important timing like the post boxer rebellion era she was demonized um, um, around that time because of um, uh, because of the boxers rebellion right so she was really eager to recreate a public image in the west it was always for the West, so um, uh, so that she understood that these uh, pending was going to be displayed to a foreign public. So it actually provides a perfect platform to create an image, a desired and uh, desirable image as a female regent, not even ruler. Because we don't see the symbol of dragon or, or, or any any hint um, uh, that um, was telling the viewer uh, she uh, was um, uh, the um, uh, she was going to be an emperor. Okay, and um, but in terms of um, photography. Of course, it played a very important role uh, in the last phase of her uh, regency and life. But um, the outcome of this, um, quote-unquote, uh, publicity campaign was in many ways out of her control. We doubt very much that she was aware of how photographs were reproduced, because um, her photographer, uh, Yu Xunlin, and his family actually took many negatives of Cixi's photo portraits with them when they left Beijing, and later on, um, uh, they were um, uh, they were reprinted, were you know, the uh, prints were sold to different studios and became available to many, both in China and abroad. And now, the majority of these group um, of um, negatives are actually in the collection of um, the Archive of the Freer Gallery in Washington, D.C. So the circulation of these um, uh, prints became a big headache uh, for, um, uh, for xi and the Qing court. Because from my analysis of the composition and the style, I'm quite sure that they were not meant uh, for public uh, display. The majority of them uh, were actually some um, experiment. She was trying to find out the right way to sit before um, a camera. So you see a lot of um, daily objects like um, uh, facial tissue or even um, uh, that kind of small containers between um, 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 uh, for hygiene purpose, uh, just um, uh, right next to her. And of course, um, they don't appear in any of her formal portraits. So we know that, okay, these are uh, not for public. They were her like own um, experiment, and of course, um, uh, if she could, she would not have um, let them um. um. Um, reprinted for public purpose. And um, among these um, uh, photographs we also see a small group of very provocative uh, photographs, but now they're probably the most uh, well-known photographs of sushi like looking into the mirror very narcissistically or with her legs crossed and uh, showing a very provocative gaze, all celebrating the feminine self. Of her that she could not reveal in the corridor in public, so that's a quite interesting uh, dimension in looking at um uh, Cixi's um, uh, portraits. How she followed tradition, how she tried to manipulate uh the new, um the new media some um, uh, qualities, and her, um I would say a, a small misstep in terms of for uh, photography, uh, that resulted in a very unexpected outcome.
0: So speaking of unexpected outcomes, uh, I have a question about how we methodologically handle things that don't go as planned, right? Because in the next chapter, we encounter her through yet another medium, uh, her investment in architecture, right? Which is a realm likewise that is controlled by men with some exceptions, Um, but it's a failure, right? You've already mentioned this. This comes early in her career as a regent. Um, so how do we read and analyze an unfulfilled project? In this case, the Garden of Myra Springs. Uh, how do you do that in your book? And we have some sense already of how you're doing it because you did mention this resonance with another chapter, but could you elaborate on that? Okay. So when you talk about a so-called
2: failure, then we immediately realize that the outcome is not the most important. The most important part is the process and intention. And that's exactly what I um, uh, do in chapter two. So We're very fortunate that even though this project was abandoned uh, because of the scandals and um, the corruption uh, in the court, um, the blueprints, architectural models and journals of the architect team uh, together with the Qing court archives are well preserved. And uh, these um uh, groups, large groups of um archival materials, really enabled me to recontextualize the project. And you know, it goes into day-to-day detail, especially the journal. It was it was mentioned that okay, on this day, uh, we are going to um uh, uh to the court, and um uh the Empress steward will receive us. Will bring um these architectural model. And then the next day, you will see the um, uh, document, uh, how they documented the meeting. The empress Dowager said said, I don't want this window or, you know, I want um, the, um, a different motif on this side of the wall. So it goes into this um, uh, degree of uh, detail. And we can also match uh, the textual um, evidence with the architectural models. Um, that um really shows you because um, um in my book I also showed two sets of um, architectural models one is furnished and the other is unfurnished and um, uh, on each um uh, wall, as we know, Chinese architecture has very um, um flexible interior um, divisions. we use um the so-called partition so they are removable walls or um, uh, or screens, you can uh, you say that. So on those um, um, architectural models, it's really interesting to see things like flashcards. You can actually change different flashcards to to see the visual effects of um, different designs. So um, that's um, uh, very visual training, and um, you know, in the process of um, um, uh, recontextualizing this project. I see Xi's learning trajectory towards a sophisticated interior de- uh, designer uh, because prior to this project, uh, what Xi and the uh, Qing imperial uh, family faced was they have abandoned Forbidden City when they moved um, back to um, Beijing from uh, Ruehe in the aftermath of the Second um, Opium War, right? They left for um, a good a couple of months and um, the, uh, the, court, uh, the the court, um, the uh, Forbidden City was left unattended. So starting from the first day of her regency, she was um, working very hard on maintaining the space within um, um, the imperial precinct. And of course, after almost like 10 years of doing that as a daily routine, advising the eunuchs or. A Consulting the architect, she was very much prepared for this project, and um, and that um, uh, that really prepared that so sort of gave, gave her some uh, solid training uh, before she jumped into um, the project of the Gardens of Myriad uh, Springs, and um, uh, so that's some um, the process. And let me shift to intention a little bit more, and um, um, I want to. Talk a little bit about the political dynamics in the court at that time, we know that uh, her first regency was a very unique one, because for the first time in the Qing history, we now have two regents, not only two, but that they were both female, female regents. Uh, and uh, Cixi was actually the junior regent as opposed to Cian, her counterpart. Um, uh, uh, her dear the, spouse uh, was um, Xianfeng, Emperor Xianfeng. And uh, Cian was the empress. So, you know, by law, she was um, uh, of a, a, a succession. She was the senior uh, empress dowager. And uh, they were... Mm, they were, you know, nominally equal, but in actuality, um, in terms of um, their place in the Qing family hierarchy, Zen um, was definitely a step uh, higher. And that was always a um, a problem for Xi. I think deep down, she definitely had that kind of insecurity because um, she was the one who did all those chores and um, um, all those things. Um, um, uh, all those meetings with some um, uh, the court officials to end was some um, fundamentally not interested in politics or whatsoever. She remained in her own private realm for most of the time. So when this project was some um, initiated, it was actually a celebration for the both for the um, two empress dowagers. Now that they retired from politics, with some um, uh, uh, Emperor Tongzhi taking taking the role. So it, was, it should be a place for retirement. But um, uh, what we see is a quite interesting manipulation of architectural language to, for Cixi to sort of, um, in a way, take revenge. <laughs> because um, if um, uh, we take a look the, uh, at this hierarchy, then very naturally in these um, uh, gardens of uh, Myriad Spring, the senior Empress Dowager would take up most of the space right with the junior one you know stepping uh, aside but in the reconstruction project um, it's reversed so she now occupied a much bigger palace with much more elaborate um, interior decoration and furnishing Whereas and was very happy with whatever she was given so we see very few suggestions from her and um, uh, so that definitely speaks for his intention you know, by now, she was like, OK, my mission uh, is done and I wanted to conclude my achievement. And in a way, you can also say that um, uh, what I deal with in Chapter 2 is her strategy to visualize authority in architectural space.
1: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe.
0: Indeed, but her mission was not done. <laughs> um, she she becomes a regent yet again. Um, but before we get to that, I have several questions about chapter three, which is connected, of course, to chapter two, and so far as this commission of porcelain that you write about, the Dayajai, right, um, is initially made in order to be part of this uh, Garden of Married Springs, right, which the Garden come to be, but the porcelains um, kind of manage to exist regardless, right? Um, And you write that with this porcelain commission that is really made in order to be part of an interior design, she creates a vernacular, colorful, and auspicious universe around her. So we get a sense again of this kind of media environment, right, or ecology, if we want to borrow some terms from media studies that she's working with. Um, And I wanted you to elaborate a little bit more about how these porcelains are multimedial, in particular, right, because they're also um, surprisingly associated not with the painting workshops, but with the embroidery workshops. And of course, um, embroidery is a very gendered space. So can you tell us more about that how these are to use this cheap pun interwoven in, in various <laughs> media. <laughs> yeah, interwoven is such a popular word nowadays, but it's uh,
2: also very adequate in terms of um, talking about the Daya Jai project. So, um, but I think um, porcelain itself is a quite interesting decorative art that weaves different art forms together. And um, uh, it's um, both artistic and uh, utilitarian nature is um, equally intriguing. That's why I started my um, art history study with um, uh, ceramics. So on the case of um, um, uh, Daya Jai um, Porcelain Commission, uh, I think we should begin with um, the purpose of um, the uh, commission. It was meant to be the birthday present uh, for Cixi's self and for a new palace dedicated um, to um, uh, to her, uh, this like pal- uh, not palace. It's really hard to translate <laughs> translate that from Chinese context to to the English. But um, uh, it's like the palace compound in the, um, uh, uh, within the precincts of um, the gardens of uh, Myriad uh, Springs. So um, uh, let me clarify, this um, uh, commission was only for Cixi. It was not something that Cixi uh, g- uh, got to share. So it was very, very personal and dear to her. So, um, uh, and also on this It it should also be mentioned that it was a very rare opportunity for a Qing imperial woman to take charge in porcelain commission because um, um, porcelain making is actually a very much ungendered task because of its heavy labor and um, also because of its um, very complex um, uh, method of creation. So even though in uh, in Neolithic time, uh, potters were usually... Women, but um, when it evolves into a very much industrialized craft, women's place uh, would, um, you know, retreat to um, the maybe last stage, the painting and decoration. And um, in the Qing uh, court context, basically all the um, communication or commission with the kiln uh, was done by men, either the emperor himself. Or the uh, court officials um, who supervised the imperial court, uh, imperial kiln, women really had no place in the making and design of porcelain. They were recipients, right? And because um you get um, a certain amount of um, um ceramics according to the rank uh, in the court, but you don't get to choose. Everything was by you know uh, by the rule. But for Cixi, this was really a unique commission because she was now uh, making something that used to be very masculine and she wanted something just for herself. So that's, um, uh, that's um, the first uh, um, uh, characteristic, a very personal characteristic of um, the Daya Jai Commission then we come to design many of the motifs popular on Sushi's clothes such as wisteria hydrangea uh, they were already in the pattern book of um the qing court but they were definitely insignificant somehow they became very popular in late qing court and i think Sushi was um a very important promoter of these two you know, very uh, elaborate um, and large um, blossoms. And um, these two um, uh, flowers are also present on um, the Dai Yajai porcelains and a good number of them uh, were being designed and produced. Uh, and um, not only the motif, but the way how they are painted, uh, they also show a lot of similarity with what we see on her robes, as I um, showed in my book. And uh, so this is another layer of this kind of multimedial, uh nature of these porcelains. Um, they actually shared... The pattern book with other media like you know um, painting or embroidery, and the third layer of this kind of inter um, uh, multimedia nature goes to um, architecture, because like I mentioned earlier, um, the architecture uh, architectural models of um, um, these um, palace has many different kind of um, flashcards, right? So we see different types of um, decoration, and all of them are very auspicious. Because it's after all a celebration of birthday and retirement, right? So it sounds to be expected. But then, what is so interesting about uh, the Daya Jai um, uh, porcelain is that all the motifs that we see on uh, uh, this set of porcelain are also very auspicious. So when you put them in the space built with all kinds of um, uh, decoration um, meant for um, um, auspicious um, um, symbolism. It really creates a, like what you call it, a auspicious universe that you wanted to live in. So I think it's a quite amazing coordination. It's like a concentric circle radiating from Sushi's body, which is covered by her clothes, right? And then to the objects she used Eventually to her space, so you can say that Daya Jai porcelain was like an intermediate between her body and her space.
0: yes, absolutely. That that comes across in your book, and you know, as you're talking, I, I hope that listeners are getting a sense of how deeply researched this is, and how you're really able to do justice to what you're describing now, right? This this universe, right, and the concentric cent- circles of it. Um, it's it, it's a universe that we come to inhabit, right? When we read the book as well. So I really, uh, that's one of the most enjoyable parts of uh, the book. But so if we return then um, to away from the body and away from the porcelain back to architectural form, right, if the first foray was a failure, then we do have a success, right? Insofar so far as the Garden of Nurtured Harmony and another one of these compounds within the palace um, allows her to reconfigure patriarchal space. And this significantly defines her second regency. So what does that mean? How is architectural language deployed to reconfigure gender and power in this later regency? Well, if in chapter two,
2: I looked exclusively, not exclusively, largely at interior, then uh, in chapter I actually um, focused on the exterior and the layout of the entire garden, uh, because um, uh, for this materialized project, it was a very um, obvious straightforward statement of her authority now, um, you know, on- you know, um, uh, not to be challenged at all. So, of course, she wanted to pin it down and to let everybody know that it was her garden, it was her space, even though nominally it was a gift from Emperor Guangxi uh, to, um, uh, to Zixi, but she was really the mastermind uh, behind everything. So I think there's a phrase, space is power, and I think that's totally true in this case. Um First of all, it's important for our listeners to bear in mind that the construction of Chinese architecture in the imperial precinct strictly followed um, uh, the hierarchy in architecture. Different people of different rank would um, you know, um, uh, be uh, living in a certain compound with the decoration and layout suitable for that rank. So that's why space is power. You immediately see uh, where you belong. And uh, Cixi uh, definitely understood it very well. And she manipulated all the rules. If our listeners um, have visited um, Yi he Yuan or the Gardens of Nurtured um, um, uh, Harmony, then you will immediately notice that Cixi's own palace, um, the Hall of um, Happiness and Longevity, Le Shou Tang, is south-facing. Very large It's actually the largest compound, and it has the best view. It's on the north bank of um, uh, the uh, of the um uh, of the lake, whereas Guangxi's palace, much much smaller, is just to the south of um, Cixi's um, uh, palace, and uh, it's on door um, you know faces uh, west. South facing is very important um, in the uh, directionality of Chinese um, architecture because um, it it, it represents um, the the status of the dweller. So this opening, uh, the uh, directionality of the architecture speaks the, um, uh, the hierarchy between Cixi and Guangxi already, and then the size, right? And then the location. Because um, even in our contemporary context, we know, right? Your boss is always um, uh, uh, seated behind you, not in front of you, because um, you know uh, as employers, um, you are watched by the boss. And that's also the case with um, uh, the, um, uh, the gardens of nurture is harmony. Su Xi's uh, palace was located is located behind uh, Guangxi's palace, so his every movement uh, is being watched. So you can say that's a kind of invisible um, uh, pressure for him. But the most literal um, distinction between uh, the, uh, the two's power would be the pendant decoration on the beam. So uh, on the beam of Cixi's palace, uh, you will find a lot of um, uh, rounded decoration in the architectural term, we call it He Xi style or He Xi pattern. It is only used for the highest ranked um, uh, architecture. Whereas on the beams of um, uh, Guangxi's palace, we see a lot of um, uh, uh, a lot of um, uh, with um, different paintings, and that is called Su Shi painting. And that is um, the decoration used on uh, architecture of lower ranked. So that's, again, you know, any visitor who was aware of this kind of hierarchy, it was a common sense for the officials in the Qing dynasty to to realize that, okay, this is um, a very straightforward statement. It's um, unspoken, but it's visible.
0: Yeah, so she certainly put him in, in his place, so to speak. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why don't we turn then to your final body chapter where you yourself examine the logic of the gift, right? The chapter is called "Elegant Gifts for Publicity. Um, And I wanted to stop at this word because I think it has a kind of contemporary connotation that uh, might give some readers pause, but I think that it is the right word. And I would like you to tell us how can we understand Sissi's savvy as a public figure, as a figure of publicity, especially because the way that she commands publicity is quite different from her contemporaries, right? It's different and at the same time, she's very aware of the modern world in which she lives, right? So, what is what is this gift exchange? How is she propagandizing herself, if we want to use an even more charged word? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another great
2: question. Thank you, Julia. Uh, but before that, uh, let's make a distinction. In terms of uh, publicity, it's also very important to um, take note on, you know, what, um, what body of audience are we looking at? The oil poetry project that I mentioned in chapter one was geared toward foreign public. So it basically adhered to the conventions uh, that Western viewers would understand. And in Chapter 5, uh, the ink painting and calligraphy, they, they were gifted to foreigners, but they probably didn't get the same set of message. But the majority of them were actually gifted to her subjects in China. So this is a kind of Chinese style of publicity uh, campaign. Right. And I know a lot of people would have a lot of question marks or scratch their heads when they see publicity, but they are not seeing any portraits. Right. And I think, it again, it requires a little bit more explanation because, um, of course, um, uh, to create one's image and to effectively um, um, uh, make your image known, a portrait is most appropriate. In the Western tradition, you have portraits of the ruler in various um, kinds, um, as early as the coins in ancient time, to the printed portraits or photographs uh, of the contemporary royal uh, royalty or um political leaders, but in Chinese tradition, portraits actually refer to different kinds of image. Of course, you have um, portraits with, um, you know, human form. Right, anthropomorphic. But um, most of these um, portraits were for ritual purpose, like you know, the ancestral portrait and for limited, very intimate circle, like you know, friends of um inter, inter, um, um uh, intellectuals, elegant gatherings, it's just like something memorable for this um small group. So so um uh, that was a very different dynamic in terms of making a political figures um uh, Uh, image known to the public, I think the Chinese tradition really um, uh, uh, looked at a very different art media, which was painting and calligraphy. And together, they share one thing in common, that is the brushwork. Brushwork is something that you have to use with your, write down or draw with your own hand. So the way how you draw actually speaks for your persona. And that's why painting and calligraphy played a very important role in the Chinese style of publicity work. If you're gifting a piece of calligraphy with very tiny um, uh, characters, very neatly written, then people would assume your persona is kind of rigorous, careful. If you gift someone a piece of calligraphy with really broad and um, free lines and even like drawings, very abstract forms. Then a person, of course, would perceive um, the writer to be someone who embraces some personal freedom and who's got a lot of um, creativity in mind. So this is kind of image making context in China. And that's why for Cixi is absolutely appropriate, especially she was a woman. Right? For men, of course, uh, if you want to uh, greet friends, uh, to make new friends in public with no problem at all. But for an imperial woman in the court, a ruler, how do you make your persona known? Since a lot of people can't really see you. Mm -hmm. then that was her choice, that was her go-to method. And also, um, a lot of people would think that painting and calligraphy, they are one of a kind, but it was actually not that simple because a lot of her paintings were actually mass produced by her ghost writers or painters. Mm -hmm. So that's why in the collection of um, Palace Museum in Beijing, there are more than 700. Pendings under her name, but we don't know like who really, um, uh, who, who really uh, drew them. And also, a lot of pendings uh, under her name were actually um, made into ink rubbings. And if it's, it's ink rubbing, then you can reproduce them many, many, many different times. So that's on uh, pending. And on calligraphy, we also need to. Um, uh, Combine that practice with previous convention, because in the Qing dynasty, starting from the time of um, Emperor Kangxi, giving out um, the emperor's calligraphy was considered a privilege. He did it a lot at New Year, and the recipients would feel that, wow, this is the imperial brushwork, just like the presence of the emperor, and we all have to bow in a cold hole before it, before it. So that's um that's um what she inherited, and she definitely made use um uh for her own purpose.
0: Yeah, you you've answered my second question about this chapter, which was going to ask really about this different be- difference between painting and calligraphy and her relative. Um, maybe not familiarity, but like her sense of assurance. It seems like she was a very commanding calligrapher and a more hesitant painter, Um, but really, really fascinating processes. Um, And we know of course that even in death, she aesthetically designed herself as the ruler that she wanted to be. Um, But instead of talking about her mausoleum, I wanted to ask you about a different aspect of your conclusion. Um, you talk about the legacy of her as an art patron, and following that legacy, or using, you know, your approach to see how we might reevaluate other figures in Chinese history, female figures. Um, and of course, immediately for readers, it might come to mind like, oh, well, Madame Mao, right? Of course, she was like she she if she, if she was the new Empress Dowager, right? Um, but you don't, you don't go that route. You go um, in a different direction, which is the wife of Chiang Kai-shek, right, Song Mi Ling. Um, and it's a really interesting turn to end the book with. I think uh, it really underscores how complex this history of division is and how Cold War Chineseness and senses of um, you know, tradition or heritage are, are complicated by, for example, you know, even like the competing national palaces, right? Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about like, for example, if you were gonna write a sequel <laughs> and if it was gonna be about Song mailing, for example, um, how would this methodology develop, you know, like wh- what can we do or what can others who are working in this field do with your approach when we're talking about um, more squarely 20th century figures? Well, definitely you know Madame
2: Mei-ling is the go-to person. I, I I already sort of touched upon her um, uh, in my um, uh, in my conclusion, the epilogue, right And um, the reason why Madame Mao never flying into my mind was because um, as uh, many of our listeners are aware, uh, in communist uh, China, that kind of gender division was actually discouraged it was always promoted that um, women are uh, holding up the half of the sky. And therefore that kind of very fami- that distinction between femininity and masculinity was actually uh, less um, obvious. Rather, we see both men and women trying to go the masculine way. So that's the first reason why, you know, we don't really see any of the, um, um, um uh, any of um, that um, uh, kind of um, continuation, but of course, Madame Mao is a Zhangqing was a different example because she had her own um, uh, her her own take on that. But um, uh, since her field really um, uh, is um, performance art, after all, she started her career as a film star, right? So I think she had a more modern take on this, and she exclusively focused on um, uh, you know film or or uh, uh, or a ballet or other um, model opera sort of performance art so that's um that's a little bit far further away from my approach and also very modern as you said whereas um, the one who really like you know picked up this tradition, the baton, if you will is um, uh, Madame so mailing and um, I think you're also right about this, um, this um, um, you know, um, unspoken desire to um, uh, to to visualize Chineseness, and on her part, actually, as um, the readers um, of the book will find out, um, she started in a way copying what she had done, you know, uh, while be, right before, way before uh, the uh, the uh, Republican government government, move, government, moved to Taiwan. So it started on very early and when people still had a fresh memory, especially um, uh, in 1920s with the looting of Cixi's tomb, you know, you know everyone suddenly started to realize, oh, what's um, uh, the architecture where she, you know, forever rested looks like and what are the decorations? And we see a very interesting, um, you know, resonance uh in some linking some um, uh, new um uh new uh residence in Nanjing uh, that I analyzed in Epilogue. we started to see a lot of parallels and even after they moved to Taiwan we see this kind of um um, uh, personal campaign in um, creating paintings as diplomatic gifts and promoting uh, Chinese uh, culture and tradition by making her paintings into stamps. So, yeah, there are a lot more to be said about this kind of very feminine aspects of um, you know, asserting power and authority in the realm of pop- uh,
0: politics. Yeah. But famously, Song Meiling is buried in New York. <laughs> if she could have been interred in Beijing, I think she would have been happier, right? Um, it's only Chen Kai-shek, I think, who's in Suhu. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, so thank you for that answer. But now maybe I'll ask you about your real next project. So what are you working on? What new book can we look forward to in the coming years? Yeah, well, I think I'm
2: moving were two directions. One goes very contemporary and the other stays in the 19th century, but um, I shifted um, uh, from is it I like to joke myself as a, um, a character in Journey to the West, because um, you know, from Taiwan to the States, and now from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean. Um, my, uh, I have two, um, uh, you know, um, book projects that I'm working on. The first one is uh, tentatively titled "Gendered Collecting of Asian Art in the Gilded Age." So I'm looking at um, you know women in Boston, New York, and Baltimore. And uh, in the Gilded Age and how they collected Asian art uh, and um, how they sort of distinguished their practice uh, from their counterparts um, in Europe. So again, I'm still very much um, uh, interested in gender and the material culture, so that's the 19th century um, uh, part, and for the other one, which is very contemporary, uh, is um, tentatively titled uh, "Gendered Blue: The History of Jeans in East Asia." So I analyze um, how jeans, or denim, as a fabric, and um, um, uh, and um, our costume was introduced to China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan and Hong Kong, uh, this um, uh, East Asian region, together with American intervention in terms of um, the political, um, political uh, power, the rise of um, uh, its influence in East Asia and how it sort of um, Um, uh, um, was eventually integrated into local convention and how it um, visualizes the clash of value between modernity and the Asian tradition um, um, uh, toward uh, women's um, morality. So that's uh, that's the other project that I'm working on at the moment.
0: Wow, it sounds like you'll have some very fun traveling to see some of those great houses in the northeast that are full of chinoiserie, right? Right, right. that was born and uh, in the middle of COVID,
2: I realized that, well, international travel is just so impossible. So why don't I look local? So <laughs> that's um, how it started. And with Standard Blue, I'm just very glad that um, now, hopefully, with a lot of travel bans that are gradually uh, removing, uh, I'll be able to travel to Asia and conduct more field works there.
0: Well, I wish you all the best for both projects. I'm looking forward very much to reading both of those books. And thank you so much for your time today. I encourage listeners I encourage listeners to pick up a copy of your book because it's really going to be a lovely addition to their bookshelves on January 23rd. Thank you so much, Julia. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you.